You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety, and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast with us, Cain and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. Two magicians with the exact same voice coming to you this week from Cyprus. It's a Greek island, technically, and we're very excited because we've got a very, very good interview coming up with Dave Awick. Now, Dave is Awick. Uh, it's hard to say, isn't it? Awick? Awick? I think I say it right during the interview. Okay? I was doing my casual voice on the intro there. Yeah, very casual. <laughs> Might have to turn you up. You were so casual in the edit. But the nice thing about Dave is, um, well, most of the things about Dave is quite nice. But Come on, what's nice about Dave? He's Come got, on, then. He's, he's got lovely hair. Right. A lot of the things are nice about Dave, but the interesting thing, I should say, about Dave is we'd never heard of him until we went to Edinburgh and then well, that's a long time ago though isn't it we didn't I mean, there's a lot of things we didn't know until we went to Edinburgh yeah really yeah we thought we were magicians yeah we thought we were performers yeah and we went to Edinburgh I certainly learnt a lot I mean during this conversation with Dave he's going to mention what he's learned from 10 years 10 whole years at the Edinburgh Festival Grinch, but he's kind of like an Edinburgh institution now. He's someone that people go to. So he's done 10 years at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Yeah, wow, goodness. 10 years ago, there wasn't many magicians at all at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, was there? Was Furman even there? I don't know, Did really. you ask him that in your, in your questions? Who else was there when he was there? Yeah. Did I ask him that question? Yeah. No. No, I didn't. No. But Furman was, like, the original. Like... If, if it wasn't for Furman, none of us would be there. Well, 10 years ago would be 2009. Yeah. And Pete Furman would have gone off the back of dirty tricks, at least. So maybe that was 10 years ago. Maybe that was more than 10 years ago. But why did Dave go? Well, you're going to find out. Yeah. It's a big, it's a big story. Okay. Yeah, I don't want to ruin why Dave, Dave goes. It's a big story. So coming up, Dave joins us. If you don't know who Dave is, listen to this. And also... He's literally the best magician. He is literally the best magician. In the body of this podcast, in the little description thing, I don't know if you're the kind of person that reads this. No one reads the body. Read this body. Because in the body, there is a link for you to purchase and download an instant download of Dave's show. It's in there. So if you don't know Dave, Which download show? it. Literally, it is literally. Yeah. Literally, The Best Magician is the show that you can download. Now, that is in there. Because I think it's pretty cool, you know, that Dave puts his shows out for you to stream. And that's also the show we watched. Yeah. Yeah, and actually we watched Actual Magic. Right. Actual Magic we watched this year. Yeah. Yeah, but I saw literally. Yeah. Do you not come with me to literally? I saw literally, yeah. Uh, and you can download it for just five pounds. That's the one that's downloadable. That's the one you can download literally. now. Right. Yeah. But as mentioned, you're gonna you're gonna find out that you can download all the, uh, some more of Dave's shows. But if you don't know Dave, download that show. If you do know Dave, download that show. You already know you like him. You already want it. And talking of shows, before we bring up Dave very quickly, we must of course mention that on the sixteenth of November. We're doing a gig. That's time. We're doing a gig in Camden. It's a month away. It's a month away, but we need to come and watch it. Come and enjoy it. It's Split Egg, a magic show about being twins. We're very proud of it. We've done a whole podcast about Split Egg, so we're not going to ramble on and on about it. But Kane, what's your favourite thing about Split Egg? We, the trees. The trees. 
the trees. Uh, why why are the trees your favourite thing about Split Egg? Because it's the newest, most recent thing. Yeah, buy a ticket, get a tree. That's it, exactly. We have teamed with Citizen Tickets. And if you buy a ticket on citizentickets.co.uk, guess what they'll do? Plant a tree. They'll plant a tree. They'll plant a tree in the United Kingdom. We know there's not enough trees in the world. We're running out of trees. So every ticket you buy, they're going to plant a tree. Win-win. So buy yourself some tickets. Buy a load of tickets to our show. Buy some tickets to some other shows. Buy a ticket by a tree and then you can go visit your own tree, can't you? Yeah. And carve your name into it. Have a little picnic underneath it. Fuck it if you want. <laughs> no, don't, don't <laughs> fuck it. Do whatever you want to. It's your Hug tree. trees. Hug and love trees. Well, please do visit Citizen Tickets. Come and see us at Split Egg. There'll be a little bit more about that later on. But now, Dave joins us. On The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Joining us on Talking Tricks is Dave Anik. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. Now, uh, before we kick off, I don't normally do this, but where are we, Dave? Because we're in quite an interesting... I don't think I'm going to do any other podcasts here. What are we doing? Where are we? We're in a museum. That's a very niche reference. We're in a museum. I actually can't remember the name of this museum. What's the name of this? I think it's the National Museum of Scotland. Oh, right. Cool. National Museum of Scotland. Yep. Obvious name. Yeah. It's uh, great, we've just done a little show. It's been absolutely lovely downstairs because they do, it's a really cool thing what they do here, to be fair, open it late during the festival and uh, get a load of acts. You yourself have performed, apparently. Do a little 15 minute spot and uh, it's lovely. Really, really nice gig. How did you find it? Uh, great question, actually. Oh, how did you find it as in the- The gig, uh, yeah. Oh yeah, the gig, oh, the gig was lovely. I mean, you were there, was I any good? I liked it. it Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. It was really nice. It Lovely was a, crowd. It was a 15 minute bite sized Dave, wasn't it? A little bit of Dave. <laughs> um, I want to get into your shows that you've got on here at Edinburgh. Cool. But this is your 10th year, right? This is my 10th year. So to kick us off, how, sure. how have you seen the festival change over those past 10 years? Good question. I kind of want to say I've not. I think I've changed. Yeah. And I've just, my eyes have been opening wider and wider and wider to what this is who's here, what's possible, what isn't possible, you know? And I think there were always people doing what I'm doing now, 10 years ago, I just didn't see that. And I wasn't aware that, you know, you could make a living, that you could be performing in venues and doing pretty well in terms of numbers and stuff. So I think, um, I think it's not changed, I've just learned a lot more myself, you know? And I've been lucky enough to see it. That being said, actually, the PBA Tree Fringe has been getting bigger every year, and that's beautiful. That's really nice. It's so nice that they're just expanding all the time, and other acts are getting the opportunity to perform. And hopefully more people are now seeing free shows more than ever. So I think, I've not seen the numbers, but I feel like that's probably changed, and that's lovely. I think that's lovely, yeah. Kind of over the 10 years, have you ever been tempted to go away from the the Free Fringe model and and do one of the... The paid shows. Those dirty paid shows. Um, don't get me wrong, like I've looked at it, obviously, like I've thought about it, and um, I've looked at the financials and I've spoken to people who've given me sort of sample financial plans for paid fringe shows, and obviously, fundamentally, with the exception of the free fringe and the idea of busking, no one else uses that model, like no one performs for free and at the end asks for money, and um, most people tend to go, hey, buy a ticket to my show, which 
I need to, you know, like if I'm touring outside of Edinburgh, obviously sometimes I've got to use that model because that's the model the venue uses, you know, and it makes a lot of sense. And it's also kind of weird to market a free show outside of the Edinburgh Festival. That being said, there's a really good book by a guy called Nicholas Lavelle called The Curve, which is how to make money in a world where everything's becoming free. And he's a video game developer. And what he did was he talked about how the most uh, profitable apps, uh, like gaming apps, uh, the top 10 making the absolute most money were all free to download and free to play. And the PBH model is exactly the same. You know, it's all about, hey, your content is going to be shown to people for free. Someone's going to video you, someone's going to release it. It's pretty much impossible now to stay a secret, you know. Why not accept that and instead adapt your business model, you know? And so far, looking at the festival, I can't see that the paid for engine in any way is as good as that model. Like, why pay a lot of money for a venue that is not as good as a lot of free venues are? Why pay a lot for producers that aren't as good as me contacting producers directly or marketing? You know what I mean? So, uh, so although I've been tempted and I've really studied it, I still don't think that I'd do it. Not yet, anyway. Maybe one day. Who knows? Um, just going back to something, actually, that you said earlier. You said you'd learn a lot. Yes. In the past 10 100%. years, and yeah, I just yeah. kind of thought I should have asked what, what are some of the key things you've learned or um, key kind of developments then that you, you felt over sure. the decade? Yeah, That's so long, isn't I it? I mean, a lot. Yeah. Like, I could probably give you year on year, but um, uh, big things would be um, understanding that the bucket speech was really important, which is something a busker knows, which is something that I didn't know and I've certainly learned, um, sort of how to ask for money how to ensure that people who want to patronize you, who want to give you money, because a lot of people will go to shows and they'll be like, oh my God, I love this performer, I love this performer. And all they've done is pay five pounds to go and see that person. And that's the extent to which they can patronize that performer. Um, whereas if I give them the option to give me more, they'd like to, they want to invest in me. They want to go to their mates and go, hey, I give this guy 20 quid because it was the best show I've ever seen. A lot of, I want to say that about acts I've seen, you know what I mean? And I do. Um, so being able to give people the opportunity to like support me is a is a is a is a thing I've learned. Um, be really really good. And that sounds sort of silly and obvious, but like you, if the product isn't good, it doesn't matter how good your marketing is. Like even when I was making the comment of saying those guys who are really good at the business but not necessarily good at performers, they still have to be of a level. You know, you've got to be really good. So for the entire year. You shouldn't just be practicing, but you should also just be researching new magic, performing as much as you physically can, because there's nothing that will get better, there's nothing that will make you better more than performing, you know? Um, and obviously trying to perform in the context that you will be doing it professionally. So if you want to be a close-up magician, perform close-up all of the time. Not just to friends, but to strangers. You need to do that. If you're going to be performing on stage, you can't just perform for your family. You've got to go out there to comedy clubs, to wherever. So doing a lot of that made a big difference in my life. Um, and then recently I had a whole change with, I mean, if you've ever seen my shows before, I think you might have, like, the show I did most recently, Actual Magic, is totally different to what I've done. And that was a big sort of quote-unquote artistic change. I hate saying that, it sounds so wanky, but like, who can I swear? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, good, thank God. Uh, so yeah, so those are kind of the big changes, you know? How to make money, how to get good, and how to develop as an artist are probably the things, yeah. There you go. With actual magic, sure. um, there's a real narrative to it, and yeah. what I think is brilliant is actually you kind of watching it, you're not 100% sure what that narrative is straight away. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's really nice how you tease us along the way with sure. these bits of stories, and then 
which slowly all kind of linked together at the end. And it's actually really powerful at oh, the thanks, end. It's really, you. really beautiful. Um, I wonder, you mentioned that there was a different kind of approach you took to, to the show this year by kind of having that sort of narrative yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did that come from a desire to do it or did that come because of the, the change that happened in your life? The desire to do it, much more than the change. It so happened that like the time at which I was like sort of developing what I was doing like um, uh, as a performer happened at the same time that other stuff happened and so it made sense that the stuff I talked about was that. If anything it was just the most practical and the easiest thing to do because for a long time I never wanted to talk about anything personal because I think I'm a big, like I'm a professional and I think it's important to sometimes separate your professional and personal life, you know. Um, that being said, I've got very, very good friends who are really good performers and have a good job of getting truth and honesty on stage. I've never been able to do that. I've always sort of hidden behind this veneer of I'm super confident on stage and I'm sort of like, I play, because I was very aware in my early days when I walked on stage, they saw this sort of short, not short, not that short, but short enough, a ginger kid with glasses who does not look like he should be standing there. And me realizing that that's what they see was powerful. It meant that I could come on and immediately smash that expectation by being so confident and so like uh, sort of sillily over the top, I'm so brilliant and I'm gonna blow your mind. And then trying to follow up with that. Well, following up with that, like the magic's pretty powerful, you know? Using that was a, was a sort of strong thing for me. And then recently, I was like, oh, you know what? I feel like I don't need to do that anymore because I don't need to prove it to myself. Like, I know I can be a good magician. Like, I know I can be good on stage. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, people will watch and go, oh, this guy's all right. I had that. And then I was like, well, what can you do with that? Like, like, you know, the best art seems to always tell a story. And I've never told a story. I don't think there's a lot of magicians telling stories. Some people do. Chris Cook, always to his absolute credit, always tried to tell a story on stage. Some things, sometimes I think he succeeded, sometimes I think he didn't, but his constant attempt at narrative was genuinely a bit of an inspiration for me because while I looked at him and I always thought, and Chris has said this to me, he said, like, we always kind of looked at each other and went, I can do that, but better. And so we always had this kind of, not rivalry, but like, we, we, we did work by watching each other and going, how can we do that? And um, I never had anyone ever leave my show crying from like, you know, not because, oh, that's shit, but like, crying in a, like, like, like having an emotional impact. And don't get me wrong, I don't want people leaving my show crying, but I do want them leaving going, I felt something, that'd be nice. And it's hard to do that without telling a story. I don't think you can. You could, you know, if you watch a Michael Bay film, it's just a lot of action scenes. If you watch a stand-up comedy set, sometimes it's just joke, joke, joke. And those things are good, because they're visceral and we enjoy them, but isn't it so much better when you watch an action movie that's got an incredible narrative, like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly or Unforgiven or something like that? Or you watch a comedy movie that's got like some deep heart to it, like, oh God, I can't think of a comedy movie that's got that now. A lot of comedy movies, you know what I mean? Uh, and I immediately thought of The Hangover, and I'm thinking, what's the deep narrative in that? <laughs> but, uh, but you know what I mean? Uh, and you don't see it a lot with magic, and it's hard to do with magic, especially because magic pretty much exclusively works in a live setting. I don't think it's very good on television. I don't think it's necessarily very good in film. It does work in those places, and you know David Blaine's a genius, like, no question. But in a live stage context, how can you tell a story and use the magic? Because obviously you can sometimes tell a story alongside, you know, you can be like, here's a bit of narrative, here's a trick. And to a degree that's what I do, but hopefully at the end you realise the, the magic was part of what I was trying to... Do you understand what I mean by that? Like, does that come across? It's hard for me to know what comes across, you know? When you kind of thought, right, I want to tell a story this year. Yeah. Did you then kind of go and start researching in a different way to this show? Or yeah. actually, 
is it kind of had you just naturally done the research with your interests anyway and you kind of knew what storytellers you wanted to be inspired by uh, a little bit of both but definitely more of the former so i'm a big fan of um dan Harmon. um always have been uh, ever since community loved community from like i think i got into it about series two or three um, maybe series two someone introduced me to it and uh, and i was like oh my god this show's incredible and loved it and then rick and morty after that um, and a lot of people, I think, there was a big backlash with Rick and Morty because everyone was like, oh, it's not as good. It is, it's genius. Like, the whole work he does is absolutely incredible. And then the work he did on the story circle, the story embryo, um, I got really heavily into that. And I was already kind of into the Campbellian monomyth stuff because of, um, you know, Jolly Boat, Tommy Croft? Yeah. I used to live with Tommy Croft, and Tommy Croft's an absolute genius. Like, he really, his brain is unbelievable. And um, he, he was really helpful with me. We talked a lot about story structure. Same with Ed Croft. I actually talked a lot more about Ed recently with about story structure stuff. And they got me into the idea of the Campbellian monomyth. I don't know how much they were into it, but I was really into it. Did loads of research on the classic examples like The Matrix and Star Wars and how those all followed those, um, those uh, sort of narrative structures and um, the hero's journey and all that stuff. And then I've always tried to implement that into my shows, but I never really was successful. And I kind of failed a couple of times. So I wrote a show called The Cult of Dave and that did really well, but only mechanically. So it was just a show that was very well structured, like in terms of the magic. You came in, it began with a really powerful bit of magic, followed up with an even more powerful bit of magic, and then kind of dipped, but it was quite still entertaining until at the end where you bring everything back together. And I was like, oh right, that's a really good structure. Tried to do it again the next year and failed. I wrote a show called Mind Wizard that I don't think was nearly as good. The magic was really good, but it just didn't feel very good and then I did literally the best magician and that followed the same structure as the Cult of Dave show but instead of mentalism it was magic you know and that was the best I'd done and I was like oh this is really good and again just tried to replicate it and failed like did luxury and I I just didn't think that was very good and when I failed again after writing literally that was a big moment of me going wait I shouldn't be failing I should by now have a have a really good structure for a magic show and I did but what I realized was I didn't understand how to put the story stuff I knew into like a narrative that fit with the magic. And man, I've literally spent the last year reading everything I could find on screenwriting, on uh, structure in loads of like specific elements of structure, like different kinds of art. I think the thing about it is like, I'm a really good magician. I know I am because I've been doing it since I was a kid and I've committed myself to it. That doesn't mean I'm a good writer. And realizing that was really powerful. And I thought, right, okay, well, what if you know, what, what is the best work that's been done on writing a narrative? It's pretty much exclusively screenwriting. All the books are on screenwriting. A lot of, loads of, this YouTube's amazing for that. Like watching all of these video essays on movies I really loved and like different elements. There's a really good YouTube channel called um, uh, Just Write, which is an offshoot of a channel called, oh my God, what's his, Nerd Writer. Brilliant, love all of his videos. Really good deep dive video essays. And um, they're super good. And it's, it's all about just understanding how to tell a story and when a story's powerful, you know? And, uh, and techniques for telling a story. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you've got to learn. You've got to do the research. You, there's no one who can magically stand on stage and be good at that. Like, I definitely can't. And so I've spent, and that's why I'm never gonna do actual magic again. Like this, uh, I'll fin I thought I was gonna write a show and it was gonna be my next sort of three year thing. I'm not, I realized as I was performing it that it was a personal show and it did a lot of things that I wanted and was a huge learning experience. I'm going to be able to do that again, but better, I think. I hope. Um, so next year, it's going to be a whole new thing. Yeah, I'm glad I filmed it. You're doing three shows a day this year. Sure. You've kind of, in certainly in the five years that I've been coming to Edinburgh, you've always done multiple shows. Yeah. What was your first decision behind doing that? Monetary or...? Um, primarily financial. I yeah. think um, uh, a couple of times I accidentally fell into doing multiple shows. 
Um, I can't remember how, but I do distinctly remember going, I didn't plan this, and then it sort of happened. And yeah, I sort of quickly realised that the more people you perform in front of, the better you do do financially. Um, and so I just tried to do as many shows as was reasonable. And then I did too many, and that was hard. And I sort of had a bit of a, a bit of a um, uh, sort of physically hard time. It's more physically, oh, it's mentally hard as well. I think the thing about Edinburgh is, I've always said like, I, I know a lot of teachers, I know a lot of doctors, and we just don't work nearly as hard as they do. So I will never say that what I do is a hard job. That being said, um, I suppose working for three weeks with no day off, that's kind of the thing that does send your mind a little bit crazy after a while. Because um, it doesn't get monotonous, but it does get repetitive. You've got to kind of find the love in it, but sometimes it is hard to, to go back on stage and do that. Um, suffice to say though, like, I've only been doing two shows a year for most years until this one, and then I only did the extra show because someone pulled out of the Banshee Labyrinth venue, which is yeah. a beautiful venue, the cinema room. Banshee Labyrinth is incredible anyway, and I've always wanted to do a show in that room as long as I've been coming to Edinburgh. And, uh, and I got the chance to do it, and it's gone really well, and I loved it. So yeah, so there you go. There's two reasons we do two shows a day. One is, we, the first year when we came to Edinburgh, we would do a show at 1.15, and then we would go straight to the pub and spend all of the money. Yes. And then also book tickets to loads of other shows. Sure. Because we'd be done by half past two. 100%, yeah. With loads of free money. Great thing. So we were like, we need to do something to stay out of the pub. <laughs> um, so we were like, if actually we're not done till like half past eight, nine o'clock every day. 100%. Then that's gonna do that. Sure. And then it, it also allows us that we can have one show in a 100 seater and one show in a 50 yeah, seater. Yeah, and yeah, then you yeah, yeah. completely different Types of material. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 100%. Do you, is that something you look to do to kind of present different styles? You're always in kind of similar rooms, are you? Yeah, well, as it happened this year, because of the Banshee Labyrinth Cinema Room, that's like a 30 seater and it's like um, sort of, you wouldn't call it rakes, or maybe you would, like sort of downward seating, you know what I mean? Um, so I'm like on the lowest level. And that meant I could do a lot of close up stuff, which was really fun. Which is kind of similar to what I did last year with Luxury, but um, the cinema room was much nicer. Uh, whereas the other two rooms are different. Um, yeah, they're mainly sort of bigger, sort of on stage in front of a big crowd. But I think that's kind of where I am, or sort of where I want to be. The speakeasy is like an 80 seater, 90 if we're being illegal about it, but like 80 seater. And that is gold dust for me, because that means you can do stuff that's close enough that the people at the back can get a good feel of it, but is big enough that it feels like it fills the space. Um, I think. The, I think like any good theatre is built so it doesn't matter where you're sitting, it still feels quite intimate. Um, and so it's all about finding those spaces that are really big, but at the same time feel more like a theatre. You know, and obviously the Edinburgh Festival, everywhere turns into a venue and it's hard to then find good venues. Totally, you, you know, I'll never disrespect any room I ever perform in. Um, but I've been very lucky with the voodoo rooms, they're incredible and so lovely to me and the staff are amazing and they... Um, they have done so much for me. The voodoo rooms are amazing. And I think their spaces do feel like mini theatres. They feel like it doesn't matter how big you are, you still get a really good experience, you know? So, uh, so yes. Yeah, Speakeasy is certainly one of my favourite rooms to, to watch something and, and do the occasional cabaret. Yeah, 100%. Is, is that kind of one of your favourite rooms or have you got other rooms that, that you kind of love working in? Uh, I must admit the Speakeasy is probably my favourite room. I've performed there for a few years and it's... Absolutely beautiful. Like I say, I always want to do a show in the Banshee Cinema Room, and I'm glad I have. Um, the only really issue with that is it's 30 seats. It's 30 beautiful seats. Like you will have a great relationship with all of the people in that room. But the Speakeasy, I feel like, is a, if I was going to call a, a venue my home, it would be that one. You know, I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to say that, but that would be the one I feel the most comfortable in, and I understand it, and I know, I kind of know the room now. I've been performing there years. You know, it turns into a comfortable space. Um, sometimes too comfortable, if anything, to find it fresh. But, uh, but no, that's, that's, my, 
That's my home. As long as they'll have me, I'll be there. Nice. I want to talk about outside of Edinburgh. Sure. I want to talk about, I know you went to Lipper. Yes. Quite interested to talk about that. Sure. Uh, and there's a few other things, but before we leave Edinburgh behind, mm-hmm. you've directed quite a lot of shows this year. Yes, two shows. Uh, um, what was your decision behind that? A couple of reasons. I think like the first one I wanted as a director was Chris, because like I say, me and Chris have always had a little sort of an interesting relationship. Um, with the way in which we perform. Chris came up after me, but I always was very impressed with the way Chris did stuff differently, you know what I mean? Um, And I think Chris's problem is something I had a long time ago, which was I didn't have a sense of stability, just in my life generally, in my personal life, and then I didn't have a really good work ethic. And I think Chris has an incredible heart and a brilliant mind to it, but he's not necessarily had a lot of stability in his life, just, you know, like life, you know, he's a young lad, same as me. Um, And he, I don't think has, he's got a good work ethic, but it's not necessarily the one that I know that he knows he should start thinking about writing sooner than he does. Um, and I thought I could help him with that. And to a degree I did, and to a degree I went a lot more with his process. And uh, the show ended up becoming obviously something about the process of writing the show. Cuts Chris. Uh, total respect to the lad. Uh, with Mark Watson it was different. With Mark I loved that guy because I met him and I was just like, you're the nicest dude in the world. You're great. And he's a good performer, obviously, Covent Garden. Um, and then I saw his show in Leicester because I could. It was just easy for me to get to a preview show. And I was blown away with how much I was like, this is just a good show from day one, you know? Um, and the reason I said I, 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 if he wanted me to direct, I would, and he was, he was um, very keen, which made me happy about it, was just because I thought, I want to do absolutely anything I can to help you because I think what you do is lovely. And, uh, and you know, I've been coming here for years. Obviously, there's some stuff I'll know that you don't. And I may as well give that to you because, uh, you know, I'd have loved someone to do that for me. Um, and Mark, great. I love Mark. He's an absolute lad. So, yes, so those are the reasons for that. Also, it was interesting to work with other people. Yeah. Because apart from working with my show manager, uh, Charlotte, who's obviously right here with me, in terms of, like, artistical process, I've never really... Artistical? That's not a word. Artistic process. I've never really worked with anyone else. Bit of a loner. And I'm trying to change that. I think, uh, you know, it's good to work with other people. Good to have ideas. So, Mark's show, Man of Mischief, Living the Dream, what exactly did you look to, to bring to that as, as, as director of that piece? So, Mark already had a really good show that was full of magic and an idea for a story, which is everything that I hope to put into my shows. I think all I wanted to do was help him facilitate telling that story and also structure the show in such a way that made it as entertaining as physically possible. He was using bits of material that he'd already used, combined with some old bits of material, which were good. Um, He was using some bits of material that didn't necessarily fit into the structure of the whole show and the style, and he knew that. Um, There were bits of material that I kind of brought in because I thought that they would play quite strong, um, uh, which he did, which was really nice. And then I kind of wrote essentially his narrative out, but in the way that I find is most useful. Essentially kind of like the story I wrote, kind of like the Dan Harmon thing I was talking about. Um, and presented it to him and said, I think this is the story you're telling. If I was going to tell it, this is how I would tell it. And uh, he was like, all right, let me try and weave that into what I've got. And he did. And I suppose it was just a case of generating ideas and letting him have that. And then since that, I watched videos of his performances and we sort of constantly had a dialogue about tweaking certain bits of material and uh, tightening certain things up and then trying certain lines, different places. And uh, that was kind of it, you know what I mean? Like, in terms of direction, it wasn't necessarily blocking. It was just more... What like uh, what's the best way to weave this whole project together? Uh, so that yeah, and uh, and Mark's great. You know his show's great. 
Um, if anything, like uh, I kind of wish I'd sort of talked to him sooner because there were things I would have loved to work on with regards to his marketing. So I don't think enough people are seeing that show. I think it's a really good show. With your show, again, yeah, because um, we kind of mentioned the narrative of Chris and, and Mark's piece. And yes. I mentioned slightly that I kind of love that your narrative wasn't just stretched out as, as usually here's the beginning, here's the end, and here it all is. Sure. I mean, you, you kind of sprinkled just little bits of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why did you decide to do it in that way? Essentially, storytelling is all about the way in which you tell the story, right? Like, you can have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and know the narrative, but every narrative is like, I mean, a story could be really, really simple, you know? Like, maybe you're just trying to dry your clothes. That's the whole story. You've got a t-shirt, it's dirty, you need to wash it, and you need to get it dry, you need to wear it the next day, right? That's the whole story. And then you learn multiple techniques to make that story better to tell. So you need to add stakes to that story. What if the t-shirt needs to be dry because you've got an important job interview? Don't know why. Oh, a shirt. Let's see a shirt then. Um, and all of a sudden you've got stakes. So we introduce an idea really early on. So the guy's looking at the clock every 10 seconds and you can realize there's a, an important thing. Uh, but maybe the fact that he's going to a job interview is a twist because mystery also helps carry a narrative. So instead of you know him looking at a letter going, you've got this job interview which will immediately tell the viewer what's happening, it would be better to show the viewer what's happening. And the way you would do that is having looking at the clock every five minutes, having getting visibly agitated by the fact that the washing machine isn't turning on, by the fact that when he opens the washing powder, it's not there anymore. He gets it in the little cup, but it immediately falls out. All of these moments are showing someone, this guy's in a situation that matters. And we can all relate to that. Because even if we've never washed a shirt before, we all understand what it is to be under pressure to do something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been trying to learn for a year, is to find ways to go, I've got a story to tell, and I need you to care. And that's it. And so I looked at my show and I tried loads of different techniques, loads of different ways to just put monologues between each trick, except that wasn't really working. Uh, loads of ways to justify the magic. So there's a couple of great books. Uh, one's called uh, Magic and Showmanship by Henning Nelms, I want to say that's his name. Uh, brilliant book. One of those books that I've owned for a long time and never read. And then obviously when I was trying to do story stuff with magic, I was like, well, what's the magic literature on this? Which is few, far between, and in my opinion, weak. So uh, Magic and Showmanship is significantly the best book. There's a book called Strong Magic by Darwin Ortiz. Um, parts of that are brilliant. A lot of it is not. Um, and I've realized I've just said that and a lot of magicians are going to listen to this. Is that dodgy? Is it? Well, let's be honest about this. So uh, the thing about Dionysus is that I think his writing is um, a little bit too... He should be a bit more open to it. And he talks about the problems in magic and showmanship as, as a book. Um, and he's a bit right. But I think the idea with magic and showmanship is that guy was a director. And so the way he looked at magic was like theater and quite literally blocking the effects. And also the way in which you can present magic. You're either doing a demonstration of something, you're doing an experiment of something, or you're doing something analogous, which is kind of the only real ways you can perform magic. There's a couple more, I think, but those are the fundamental ones. Um, and that part was really useful because it means every effect I'm doing, am I, yeah, am I demonstrating a power? Am I doing an experiment which could go wrong, could go right? Or am I using something as an analogy? And I use those in all of the effects. Like obviously I do the fear thing, which is essentially just a bill switch, that's all it is, um, based on a Jay Sankey effect. And uh, that was just an analogous effect. I'm going, hey, what would it be like if I could take away your fear? And then I do a bill switch and it's quite a magical little moment. And everyone gets that moment of amazement, but obviously they all know it was representative of something. Whereas when I'm reading someone's mind, quote unquote, uh, the AAA book test, um, Mark Paul effect, brilliant effect, is me 
demonstrating quite literally a power. You know, I'm not claiming I have it, but nevertheless, it's a demonstration of mind reading. You know what I mean? Um, and then the uh, experiment one would be, do I do any experiments in the show? Not really, not really. Obviously, experiments is kind of a very specific sort of, you know, version of doing a trick. And all of those are really, um, I think, uh, good to know because those are the tools by which you're going to tell the story with magic. Those are the only tools you can have when you're using magic. It's kind of like horror or comedy. I talk about the same thing. Oh, brilliant, let me tell you about this. So I've got this theory. Tell me what you think about this, right? Uh, genuinely interested. Based on the fact, so in order for this theory to be true, we've got to assume that the emotion, um, the sort of emotional wheel, the emotional spectrum, I can't remember the psychology superposed it, is true, or at least it's possibly true. And all of that kind of social psychology is super vague anyway. Let's assume it is. So if you experience uh, horror, the feeling you're getting is essentially terror, to be scared, right? If you're experiencing uh, comedy, the usual feeling is surprise, which is why laughter tends to be your emotional reaction. If you're experiencing magic, you feel amazement. And I use those words specifically, surprise, amazement, and terror, which are all subsets of a very specific emotion called awe. And awe is the emotion which is all-encompassing of those three things. And I thought that was important, because when I was really trying to think about magic and the emotional effect it has on you, it seemed like First off, you're doing something and it's a very visceral reaction. If you saw someone a magic trick and they react to it, it's usually, what? It, it's quite visual and physical, right? Comedy's the same, they laugh. Horror's the same, they get scared. They're all physical, emotional reactions. And so I was trying to look and go, well, what's the singularity of that? And it seems to be awe. And awe is an emotion that is described by experience something vast. And when you think about it, that's kind of true. If you experience a joke, it's usually a punchline's a twist, you know what I mean? Like, um, and that twist is a moment where you go, oh, that story I was being told had a different ending. All of a sudden you're experiencing a wider perspective on something you thought was true. You made an assumption it was false. Horror's the same. You're being led down a dark corridor, you're being led down a dark corridor, you know something scary is about to happen, you know something scary is about to happen, it happens. That moment is when your world goes, it's bigger, that horror thing's there, magic's the same. We're showing someone something and we're going, hey, here's physics, here's reality, broken. All of a sudden you've got a moment where everything you thought you knew about the world, or at least this small moment in front of you, is something totally different. They're all the exact same, it's just a slight difference on the ability to perceive. And I thought about it, and I've got no proof of this, but when you play peekaboo with a baby, you get all three at the same time. A baby will both be scared, a baby will both be amazed, and a baby will laugh all at the same time. Because they get that feeling of, you've literally disappeared. It's magic. You've appeared, which is both surprising, but also scary. All you do is, over the course of your life, separate those things, and eventually you can sort of pinpoint them. And then when you realize that, I think it really helps you tell a story, because it means you can go, magic is a tool, a medium by which to create amazement. And when you see it as a medium, you realize it's a genre. You know, same genre, same as horror is a genre, same as comedy. And so once I realized that magic was just a genre, the exact same as comedy or horror, it became, well, horror movies exist, comedy movies exist, I can do a magic narrative, you know what I mean? So yes, I believe magic is a genre, similar to horror, similar to comedy, and uh, horror works really well in a cinema. Uh, comedy kind of works well in a cinema, but comedy tends to be better live, it's kind of both. Um, and magic, I think, almost exclusively works live. Um, that's not entirely true, but I think mostly it's at its best live. I think most magicians would probably agree with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, would you? There you go. Out of interest, out of everything I've said, Yeah. obviously this is a bit of an interview, but it's entirely yeah, yeah. a dialogue. What do you think about what I've just said in regards to 
um, you know, magic as an emotion, as a genre? What do you think? I think it's probably the kind of biggest issue with a lot of performers, certainly performing magic, is that they don't consider any of the things that you've just kind of mentioned. Oh, fair. <laughs> and they just think, here's a trick and I'll do a trick. Sure. And they don't actually think, how are different people going to react to that trick? Yeah. Because I think you can, one, one person's car trick is another person's rope trick. You know, some people just don't like certain tricks. Yeah, but it, you know, it's never really the tricks that people don't like. It's the presentation and the performer behind it. And sure. I think a lot of the times people don't think of um, the different emotions that people can feel in one performance of a trick. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's just, I'm going to do a trick and at the end people will go, that was good. But actually, in performing anything for any length of time, you can make people feel so many different things. 100%. And that's kind of something we always try and do. You know, sure. We want, obviously, humour and surprise and, oh, that was cool, are like the three that you, I think you have to have. Mm -hmm. But I think people love to find things out. And actually, when you're performing, you can, you can give so much information across. Sure. In a story. Yeah. And like we're doing a Rubik's Cube um, yeah. trick That's in the current trying. show. Yeah, yeah. And like on the way out, people are always like, wow, 43 quintillion different patterns you can make with a Rubik's Cube. Never knew that until you told me. Yeah. And like, and that's like the most basic kind of thing that people sure. can go away sure. feeling. And actually I, I said, I said to you, we do the knife for arm. And mm -hmm. A kid went away and they needed to feel my arm. Yeah. To see... Is it okay? Is it real? Sure. Even that's quite cool that people yeah. can go away thinking that. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. It's quite good with your show, though, that, you know, having that premise of actual magic, that's yeah. like a really good start for, like, if I could do actual magic, I'm going to do this. And everyone's like, oh, great. Like, I think it helps people understand the premise of what they're about to see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of need to begin with something. If I'm being perfectly honest, I tend to come up with the titles quite early on and then usually just like work that to fit the show, which is kind of lazy, but it's usually because I have constraints about when I have to apply um, and give them a title uh, for when I've got to. Generally speaking, I always like uh, to put in my title the word magic or magician because from a marketing perspective, I think you've kind of got to, Definitely. Um, especially when you're in this kind of environment. Um, uh, you're competing against so many other things and magic's a really good sell. You want people to immediately know the show's a magic show. Given that though, yeah. Actual magic, literally the best magician, they turn into their own sort of little... I mean, it's kind of like finding the game. That's what you'd say in improv. Um, I think that's true of everything. There's probably a better phrase for it. Finding the game is the phrase I'm aware of. We've obviously spoken kind of a lot about, you know, theory behind creating, like, any kind of, like, work and narrative and magic and stuff like that. I know you went to Lipper. Yeah. I'm interested to know, was that kind of something that you went to thinking this will be the best bet for me to improve as a performer to perform magic mm -hmm. or did you kind of have other aspirations about studying there and I suppose had that always kind of been an aspiration of yours mm. when I was 14 my dad said hey David you should take drama and I said no I probably shouldn't he said yeah you should and I did and I was the only one of two boys in a class of about 30 and then when it got to A level I was the only boy in a class of about 14 and I very quickly realized that Whatever I did in my entire life, it was going to be on stage in front of people. Which sounds dodgy, now that I've said that out loud. But then I was like, I want to be an actor. Applied loads of drama school, I got into Lipper. Um, Lipper was the first one I got into. I got down to the final auditions on a couple of other ones. Um, one of which I think I ballsed up because I told them I'd already gotten into Lipper and said I was going to go there anyway, and <laughs> that didn't play. And I wanted to be an actor, and then I went through Lipper, and then when we graduated, quite literally the day after we graduated, 
Funnily enough, actually, this year, um, a woman came to my show called Connie and her husband, Gervin, and Connie was the person who said to Jolly Boat, hey, I've heard of this thing called the PBH Free Fringe, and uh, we should go up and do it. And then Jolly Boat came to me and said, hey, we've got 15 minutes spare in, your, in our show that we need to fill. Could you come up and do some magic? And at that time, you know, I had an acting agent who'd gotten me two auditions, I think, and I didn't get any of them. And, uh, and I... I uh, just graduated and I was like sure lads yeah 100% and I sort of got you know my accommodation covered and my I wasn't getting paid but like you know they covered my travel up there and stuff and then I just did the whole Edinburgh run doing 15 minutes in the Jolly Boat show for a month and I was like this is my life now and it will be forever and it has been um, so going to Lippa was a fantastic opportunity in terms of the people I met and unquestionably, in terms of like being an actor, I learned a lot. I learned more after Lippa, but in a sense, the stuff I learned after Lippa was kind of putting in perspective some things I learned there about acting. There was a lot of times where acting teachers would say stuff to you that at the time I was like, well, that makes no sense. Now it does, you know? So that was kind of the biggest influence it had on me. It did give me a lot of stage time as well, which was really nice. We did a lot of plays, and that was, uh, that was really fantastic. If anything, I do miss doing plays quite a lot. Um, and I'm definitely going to go back into that at some point, but that's going to be a few years from now. Yeah, that's Lipper for you. Lipper's great. Love Lipper. Kind of, were you always into magic as a kid? Is this going to be the classic? Got a magic kit? Always like magic story or? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. I can't remember not performing magic. My earliest memories involve magic. I remember it at primary school. I remember taking the magic kit into primary school. I remember. I just remember like performing when I was so small. I literally, I can't go back far enough to the point where I can't remember, no, you know, I can remember not doing magic. Yeah, I've always done it. Just one of those things, isn't it? People pick up different things, picked up a deck of cards, same as you, you know? Here's what it is. And who have been some of your inspirations or who are still some of your kind of magic inspirations? Good question. Um, over the years it's changed. Like there was a time where I really didn't like David Blaine and I think I just didn't like him because he was cool and it was fun not to like him. And then all of a sudden I kind of grew up and looked at what he was doing and I was like, this guy's a genius. Like what he's doing is incredible. Darren Brown, obviously what he did for magic. Mentalism, sure, but like magic as a whole. Arguably just mentalism to be fair. It's a bit of a weird one with Darren. But like what he did theatrically was incredible. My favorite thing Darren Brown ever did was in one of his shows, I forget which one it was, might have been Svengali, he did the, uh, the what do you call it when you hammer a nail into your face? The, yeah, the human, human blockhead. Yeah, blockhead. Yeah, yeah, that classic thing. And, I mean, you can remember him doing it, you remember that, it's beautiful. The whole thing was staged beautifully. And he turned what was a, a geek trick that I've seen done a thousand times. And I've seen it done very well for comedy effect. And he turned it into the beautiful piece of theatre that felt reminiscent of, you know, like almost a Hannibal Lecter kind of vibe to it. And it was great. That was probably the best thing. But since then, 99% of my influences now are non-magicians. You know, like different storytellers, directors, um, writers, um, uh, people who do TV shows, actors too, actors too. I, I follow acting still quite closely, watch a lot of videos on acting. I really like breaking down different actors' performances, watch a lot of Shakespeare. A lot of, um, recently, when I was writing this show, I watched a lot of Shakespeare, like a lot of um, monologues by uh, sort of Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. Um, I often watch like the same monologues being performed by different actors, because I think that's a really helpful thing. Because um, I do a bit of Shakespeare in the show, because I'm such a wanker, <laughs> um, uh, which I loved. But yeah, those are kind of my main influences. I think the thing is, like, 
Uh, knowing your strengths and weaknesses helps, and my strength was always magic, so it seems uh, silly to look at so many heroes for magic. I wanted to look at heroes for business, you know? In fact, business is another good example. Like, I've got a lot of heroes when it comes to um, the business side of things. Like, Stephen King writes two pages a day. With the exception of his birthday and the 4th of July, he writes two pages a day. I don't care what you think about Stephen King as a writer. The fact is, he has published so many books, and the reason his books have made more money than so, like, in so many amazing films, like, ethic, work ethic, that is my inspiration now, you know, like, I want to be the guy who gets up at nine, and like, does, and you don't even have to work all day, two pages, that could take you half an hour, it could take you ten, like, I don't care, but he does it, and that became my life, you know, like, get up every day, write consistently, what have I learned today, how many pages have I got, what, you know, that's my inspiration now, yeah, so that, there's your answer. What's your favourite Stephen King book? Uh, great question, truth be told, I've not read a lot of his books. Um, I've read a lot of his short stories um, and I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I tend not to read a lot of fiction. It's not really my medium. Um, I enjoy him more as a thinker um, and, uh, and sort of as a, as a creative. I think his process is really good. Um, that being said, one of my favorite stories he did was a story called N, which um, I originally got into because I thought it was Stephen King doing a sort of H.P. Lovecraft uh, narrative, which a lot of people said it was. And when I listened to it, it definitely is. But he says it was based on a different story called The Great God Pan, which is by someone I can't remember the title of. I don't think it was E.L. James, but um, that's a really good story. It's about a, I won't spoil it, but it's about a guy who, um, it's a story told in retrospect through letters. And it's about a guy whose childhood best friend has committed suicide. And all he's got left over are the notes that this childhood best friend has when he was going to a psychologist. And, uh, and he began to develop very severe OCD over a thing that happened to him. Quite a, like a sort of supernatural thing. That's brilliant. I love that. If anything, I'm going to reread that. Thanks for reminding me that exists. Um, yeah, so that. Not one I'm familiar with. Honestly, Get check it out. That. It's really, really good. Really good. The audiobook. Audiobooks are my jam. I love audiobooks. They're my favourite kind of thing to listen to. We focus very heavily on August. Yes. What does the rest of your year look like? Is it just sat there doing nothing? Yeah, <laughs> twiddling my thumbs. Um, a significant amount of my time is spent writing. I like work every single day. I think that's really important. Um, I'm lucky enough that financially I don't have to perform too much, like obviously Edinburgh. And then there's sort of a few corporate gigs during the year. Um, and I tend to try and, you know, I tend to try and like sort of limit myself to stuff that I, I don't have to do too much work to, um, you know. And I'm very fortunate. Like I've been doing this 10 years. You can't just do that overnight. It took me 10 years to get this to this stage, you know, so that isn't, like, I, I remember a time where I used to listen to performers go, oh, I've got all these gigs, and I'm doing all this corporate stuff, and I'm making all this money, like, yeah, if you've been doing it 10 years, like, you should be, you know, and like, or at least work harder, and you'll, you'll get to that, so I'm lucky that most of my year is spent writing, or trying to develop that, and get better at what I do, like, I think, I think there was a time where I thought I was like a really good magician and then when I failed to write a show that I wanted to write I realized I had so far to go and if anything now I feel so liberated because I feel like the doors open for to become so much better than I am and I just want to keep striving for that and so most of my year is spent doing that but I will sort of tour around sometimes I do do many tours of shows um, I work with um, uh, my show manager Charlotte um, and my sister who they're the same person uh, during the year a lot. We work together on shows and we work together on sort of the business and marketing side a lot. Um, and we'll have massive dialogues during the year about what we can do to um, sort of uh, tour a show or maximize the profits on shows we're doing. 
um, or the marketability of shows or other shows writing for other people, directing for other people. Um, so we tend to do a lot of work together during the year. Yes, it's that. Uh, final question. I know last year you, you kind of put out your, your Edinburgh show as a, as a, a download. Um, two-pronged approach. Yeah. Firstly, two-pronged questions, should I say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to approach you any further. Uh, two-pronged two question. Uh, number one, it is... Is actual going to be made available to download? And secondly, why did you kind of make the decision to, to get that film looking all nice and put out to the wider public? So, good question. Let me think about that. So I filmed literally The Best Magician a while ago, and I think I filmed it because I wanted to, and then it didn't occur to me that people who can't come to Edinburgh might have wanted to see the show. And it was really, really kind that they did, and I sort of put it up sort of as a £5 download on Etsy, and it's still there. And I was really proud of that show, and it was really good. And um, and a lot of people um, downloaded it, and I thought that was fantastic. And so this year, it kind of seemed a no-brainer. I'd like to film the shows. Um, I didn't intend to plan to film it and release them initially, but um, but I'm so glad I did. And I'm so glad so many people who get to see them, because obviously like a lot of venues aren't necessarily accessible to everyone. Obviously, Edinburgh isn't really accessible to everyone from a financial aspect as much as anything else. Um, and so it's nice that they get to see stuff. And also, I think like a lot of... What occurred to me this year, and it's because I started looking for it, is there wasn't a lot of independent sort of theatrical videos available. You know what I mean? Like, Daniel Kitson's one of the few people who was putting a lot of stuff out that I saw, and he'd filmed one of his sort of theatre storytelling shows, and I loved that he did that. Like, I loved it so much, and I was like, I want more of this content. Because apart from Netflix and YouTube, it's kind of hard to find non-mainstream Art, you know, like performance, short film plays and stuff, and Edinburgh has a ton of it. And it's mad that no one's filming it and putting it out there for the wider public. So I think, like, I filmed my show Good Morning Magic, which I was really proud of as well, um, which was kind of a best of, and I filmed Actual. And Actual Magic was a really personal show, and I'm never going to do it again, and I do think that I'm going to release that. And I may release it at the time that this podcast gets released, I'm not sure. I'm definitely going to release Good Morning Magic, which, if anything, for me, just felt like a very pleasantly structured show that was kind of, here's what I feel, here's what, for me, a good magic show should look like, just in terms of the relationship with the audience, the sort of base, you know, the idea, the sort of ups and downs of it. Um, uh, yeah, and I'd like to. I'd like to release Actual Magic, and I might... You know, um, uh, but I might not. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, we'll see. You know, it might be literally, I might give this to you when you release this podcast and be like, guys, link this because I want to sell it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, Good Morning Magic, I'm definitely going to release. And I do, I do, I did really love that show. Awesome. I think we could talk forever, but we need to go steal some dinosaur bones oh before my this God. museum closes. Yeah, we do. Cheers, Dave. Thank you so much, dude. I've had a really good time talking to you. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cade and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.